Vertical farming, what is it? You've probably heard about it. It's a thing right now and rightly so. Did you know by the year 2050, the world's population is expected to grow by another 2 billion people? Honestly, that's a lot of people and a lot of mouths to feed. Every year, our world is being affected by climate change and a growing population. We don't really know how much longer this is going to last, but what we do know is that we all need to eat and eventually that food will have to come from somewhere. Many people believe vertical farming is the future, and if this can be done right, could potentially revolutionize the agricultural industry forever. But what the heck is it? Well, today I'm speaking with Jamie Burrows, the CEO and founder of Vertical Future, a London-based company focusing on developing game-changing technologies to grow, control, scale, and manage the production of crops. This conversation was definitely an eye-opener for me and gave me something to really think about. I learned about what it is, the challenges, and also what it could potentially do to help feed billions of people around the world. If you like any of these episodes, don't forget to subscribe, like, rate, and comment. So with that, please enjoy my conversation with Jamie Burrows. Jamie? Thanks for uh, appearing on the show. It's great to have you. No problem. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, I wanted to you know, reach out to you because I know that you're doing amazing things with Vertical Future, uh, but vertical farming in general. Uh, but you know, for everyone who doesn't understand what vertical farming is and what that space is all about, do you want to give a quick one to two minute uh, spiel on uh, what you're doing over there? Sure. So, um, so vertical farming is essentially the, the growing of crops indoors under controlled conditions. And obviously the level of control very much varies on, on by system and company. And uh, generally that, that involves LED lighting, which again varies in terms of level of sophistication. And what we do is we grow in stacked layers. So we are effectively optimizing space and then obviously controlling the environment. So controlling things like humidity, um, temperature, airflow, all the aspects that you would find outside, but um, effectively protecting the crops in some ways to get more out of them. And the, the industry itself has been, um, so it, it came about, it's probably been around for decades technically, but it's really just evolved in the last kind of 10 to 15 years, driven by activity in Japan, followed by the US, and then uh, Europe has followed suit, and it seems to be uh, exploding uh, globally now. So why does, you know, vertical farming is this concept, in my understanding, is the ability to um, scale through agriculture by growing um, certain produce in sort of like a, in a vertical architecture, if you will, right? And that is very different to the way we normally think about agriculture, which is big open plain fields, farming um, out in, you know, the middle of nowhere, why is it so important that vertical farming now is becoming more and more important, especially in uh, in today's world? So, if you think about the traditional farming model and the way that we um, that, that most food works nowadays, is where we live in a in a world where everything's connected. So, if you think about your developed countries and indeed your developing countries, quite often there's demand for thousands of different food groups that are coming from across the world, and these, these crops are being grown in parts of the world where the, the conditions suit their growth. 
and uh, they're obviously being grown generally in dirt and um, quite often covered in pesticides as well. But if, if you think about the standard journey of a, of a lettuce or a bag salad, which is a very basic example and something that's been a lot grown a lot in vertical farms, typically will come from somewhere like Spain and um, will spend days and days in transport. And quite often it's coming from the US as well um, by plane. And that's covered in pesticides. Uh, so obviously, um, some of it gets lost in, in transit. So there's a degree of wastage as well. And um, it's just that that's really not good for the environment. And it's not good in terms of, um, you know, having a product that's good for end consumers. So if you think about the, the role of pesticides, I think generally we're starting to move away from that. But um, in general, I, I think, you know, there have been statistics saying that we, we actually waste a lot of our food. So I think about a third of food goes to waste uh, globally. Um, so I think a lot of people think about vertical farming being something that solves food in terms of volume. And of course, you know, we're living in a world where you know, populations are getting much bigger and the world population is increasing. People are moving to urban centers. But for me, vertical farming is more about the, the distribution of food and the quality of food and being able to, to grow something much closer to an end consumer in a more sustainable, ethical way, uh, reducing pressure on the environment. It's not necessarily about having more. And so that's effectively where we're going. And in, in an age where people people want transparency, you know, they want to know about the provenance of a product, it's much easier to have control over your supply chain if something's being grown much closer to the point of consumption. That's a good point you make, and I think there's a lot of um, logistics involved in transporting a lot of the produce nowadays. Where you go to your local, you know, corner store, your fruit market, and then you're seeing things that are imported from you know halfway around the world, right? And you don't know exactly what is, um, you know, what led to that particular fruit in terms of you know the pesticides and all of the, those things come into play, but also the sheer amount of energy that it takes to ship one of those uh, fruits and vegetables across the oceans and across massive distances is significant. And it, you know, it eats up not just uh, money and um, effort, but also you know, the carbon footprint is quite uh, amazing in, in that sense. Do you want to just explain a little bit about, you mentioned that it started in Japan, right? But how did that um, sort of instigate the movement for vertical farming? And how did you actually get wind of it yourself? What sort of inspired you to take what the template that sort of Japan provided in the US and, and sort of take that to Europe? I think there are many drivers. So if you look at um, some of the points I've mentioned already around kind of provenance and uh, location and proximity to, to where production occurs, um, then, but then if you look at uh, climate change, so climate change is probably one of the biggest drivers and those be that believe that, um, you know, temperature could increase by as much as four degrees over the, the next hundred years or so. Uh, some of the recent David Attenborough programs have mentioned that. Um, so there, there's that. There's um, nutrition. There's health and fitness. There's the fact that people are becoming more aware of, um, you know, the quality of food and aware of where food is produced, and a lot of that comes with the, the digital re resolution um, revolution and the fact that you know we're we're seeing everything over the internet. So I think they've been some of the main drivers. And then if you look at some of the recent um, economic issues we've been having, I mean, if you look at the UK, we've got Brexit, we've obviously got COVID, which has placed a um, 
a real spotlight on on food sustainability and all kinds of sustainability and the way that we function as a as a planet. So I think yeah, there's there's many drivers that seem to be converging, and um, vertical farming is you know it's not a, a silver bullet that there's a solution to everything, but it's certainly one thing that we could be doing as a you know um, in in most geographies to to you know come up with one solution to you know this complex set of problems uh, that we all face. So um, my my interest in it got uh, well. I'm I'm a former. Uh, I, I did lots of things. I was in the I was in the um, U.S. military for five years, uh, and then I came out and did my studies and worked in consulting and economic regeneration. And then um, I had some some you know some life changes. Uh, my wife and I had a couple of kids, and uh, a lot of my previous work was a lot you know very much in kind of healthcare and life sciences. Some of those projects were urban focused, and um, a friend of mine uh, sent me a link to a, a company that was doing something that's container farming in the US, which I'm not a big believer in container farming, but I was like, well, it's an interesting concept. And um, just decided to go for it and set a company up here in, in London with my wife, you know, Vertical Future, which uh, which has you know, grown significantly in the last, uh, coming up to five years now. What has it been like um, bringing vertical farming to a very congested city like London? I know that there is a lot of uh, challenges that you face and uh, especially about that movement in general. Um, you know, I'm sure that having some sort of agricultural company based in London is a very atypical uh, to a lot of tech companies out there, uh, but not just tech, but just in terms of that space in general. Um, did you face any challenges? How, how was it sort of starting up your company uh, in a place like London? It was interesting because um, I expected it to be a, bit more of a crowded market but actually when we set up in 2016 there were probably only i'd say a handful of, of companies that were properly doing it so there was um, two companies that had been doing it for kind of five years prior very different models very retail focused models one of them went under the other one's still going and um obviously in recent years there's been, been a lot more kind of small-scale vertical farms but even now the the market it doesn't even seem to be a, don't even seem to be close to you know, uh, near saturation. Uh, I mean, we were doing some estimates about the amount of vertical farms that you'd have to build to, to cover the um, to cover the you know, bag salads that we're importing from overseas. And you're talking about you know, millions of square meters and billions of capital investments. So really, we're just kind of tip, tip of the iceberg. But London is a, uh, is a great uh, ecosystem for, for technology. Um, it's expensive to rent space here, so that was a challenge. Um, luckily, we, we have probably close to 30,000 food businesses, although obviously COVID has had a big impact on, on the food industry uh, recently. So it's been, um, it's been very, very receptive. We've had a you know, very, very good time the first couple of years, but um, yeah, the first, first couple of years from a, in terms of growing the business were also very difficult. You know, we, we bootstrapped it. We took a loan from the bank, which we were very lucky to get. And it was really just myself, my wife, and you know a couple of other kind of part-time people that built the business over those first three years or so. Got it, got it just about into profitability. And then when we were able to do our first uh, seed round raise, uh, that was when we were able to actually have sufficient capital to to bring people in. I, I think people underestimate, um, especially when you're you're talking about producing your commodity effectively, which is very low price point. Um, even if you're producing, you know, have a premium play within the vertical farming sector. It's still relative to other goods that people produce in, in other um, industries. It's still very, very low. So you have to go for a volume play in order to, to effectively make money. And we, we started with a small farm because that's the only, we only had, uh, 
enough capital to build a small farm. So we've always had to work on that basis. So that I think that made it uh, very tough, but you know, luckily made it through that. Yeah, that's an interesting point you mentioned about the ability of you know funding money, you know funneling money into uh, your particular startup, uh, but at the same time trying to bootstrap yourself with you know your loan and sort of getting into that space because I can imagine especially when it comes to vertical farming and knowing what's involved, especially when it comes to materials, uh, resources, uh, the technology, that, and also the space, the real estate that you're occupying at the same time. I'm sure that would have been a huge challenge to really um, sell, especially to investors about getting that started. What was the, some of the, the, the reception like when you were pitching your idea to these investors? Um, yeah, I think we, we, got, we got quite lucky because we we found some really good, I'd say, friends and family run investors, and I set up a uh, a board, non-exec board, very early on, even in the first year, and they all joined the round, and we found some excellent um, guys who you know had um, were working in things like asset management, some of the big big firms really believe in urban, you know urbanization and how you use space, um, so they they invested. So that was our kind of first bit, and then I think we probably raised about three hundred grand, and then. When we went out to VCs, we uh, we got we got quite lucky because we found a you know, very good VC that um, that backed us, and it was really one of our first conversations. I think we we closed also during the summer period where most VCs are away, um, and uh, I think we from initial conversation to close was maybe you know a couple couple of months of that. So yeah, we we were lucky, and I I think the VC that we we brought on board were very uh, very receptive to. They they knew about vertical farming. I think they've been you know, dipping their toes in it, and they um, they understood it. So it was an easy sell in some respects. Um, but of course, you know, raising capital was an incredibly uh, stressful um, period for anyone. Um, did you have a a functioning prototype? What did you have when you were you know you had that initial round of investment coming in? You know, the three hundred grand you mentioned, but did you have anything? Functional at that point in time, or did you just really have an idea, uh, a pitch deck, and then you sort of went with that? Had a very comprehensive pitch deck and very comprehensive model. So I've always believed in having a really detailed model that is based on actual data. So I think you see different levels of models um, being provided to investors, and ours was growing data that we had actually developed ourselves. So it had a lot of credibility. Um, but yeah, I think it was. Um, yeah, it was it was a little bit a uh, little bit challenging, but you know we 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 kind of got there in the end. Um, I think in terms of the level of information, or sort of where we were in our prototyping process, we we really just had ideas when we went out to um, to our round. So when uh, when we had our seed round, which was September last year, September twenty nineteen, we um, effectively just had our oper- you know operational farm. We still had a very small team, um, but we had big ideas about what we wanted to do and the kind of system that we wanted to build. But at that stage, we were effectively uh, still just uh, growers, um, growing produce and, and selling it into the market. And since then, we've we've built our um, effectively built the technology side of our business, um, which has diversified our offering. And you know that brings me to another question that I've always been interested in about because here in the Valley and still in, in the Bay Area and San Francisco, you know everyone knows about the amount of uh, capital that's available and of you know the amount of ideas that come through but you know i'm now seeing starting to see a shift in 
um, drivers, that uh, technology drivers, that is, and especially that are moving towards not just other cities in the US, but also uh, countries like the UK and Europe and what have you, where they're starting to develop their own technology hubs, if you will. And I just want to understand the, the perspective from you because you've been down that road and you've been, you're in that space right now. Just generally speaking, what is the overall sentiment of technology growth and innovation in the UK or maybe in Europe in general, if you can speak to that? Because I know that there's a lot of friends of mine have been thinking about moving to Europe and to, to London to pursue um, engineering jobs and, and do things over there. What is sort of the overall feel like at the moment um, over in the UK with regards to investment, uh, to venture capital and all of that stuff? Well, my impression, if, if I look at, because uh, obviously you know, we do have Series A already at the minute. So we speak to a lot of investors from the US. We speak to, to um, those in Europe and actually all over the shop. We found that if you look specifically at the vertical farming sector, a lot of the investments, the big investments that have gone into the US, into vertical farming companies there have generally been uh, backing a brand. So you get a um, reported valuations um, from kind of publicly available information, a, a massive, um, it hasn't necessarily been focused on uh, intellectual property or technology. Our, our sector is quite unique in some respects because I think it's impossible to build a vertical farming business where you have completely protected IP in every single area because effectively a vertical farming system is a collection of lots of different uh, aspects. Um, so I think there have been some companies that have said, you know, we, we've, we've got a patent on a vertical farm and I just don't believe in that. So our, our strategy has always been, you know, first to market, we've patented you know, bits of our, uh, of our technology that we can. Um, but we've gone for more of a rounded offering. Um, but I, I think the general sentiment for for technology businesses, especially in um, in London and, and other kind of uh, hubs like Frankfurt, Paris, and so on, is um, yeah, it's good. Um, I I wouldn't say it's better or worse than the US, but I I think that it's a bit more of an open market here, and you get a bit more of a diversified market than you do uh, in the US, um, where you know you've got. You can apply, if I speak again about vertical farming, you can apply it in lots of different ways, in lots of different geographies. Um, but no, I think in, in general, people are, um, people are very keen. There's, there's a, lot of, a lot of investors in the UK who um, are you know, very interested in SaaS solutions, so in, interested more in the, the data side of things. I think um, that there's probably a, gr a greater uh, investor ecosystem for that as opposed to investors who are you know, interested um, in, in hardware solutions. And obviously want to put their money behind assets. Um, so yeah, it's, it's slightly different mix. Yeah, I think there's a there's a good push for that sort of movement, um, especially as you mentioned, um, you know, especially in, in London and Frankfurt. I think there's a, a huge um, migration of um, ideas that are moving into that area, not necessarily behind the hardware, but just in terms of um, certain things that can be developed. And especially in terms of vertical farming, it sounds like there's definitely a space and sort of like a slot where you can nicely fit in and grow and scale. And I wanted to understand a bit about the way the current system works. So if you take vertical farming out of the picture for now, how does how do you guys typically get your produce and sort of explain to me the supply chain, the logistics of that. And then if you were to superimpose vertical future on top of that, how does that augment the landscape? So if we talk about, 
first of all, give an example from the uh, the restaurant industry. So typically, produce will be grown either in the UK or in another geography, depending on what it is. Um, so obviously, exotic products are coming in. I think we're from overseas. I think we're importing 40 to, sorry, it's actually probably as high as 60% of our uh, fresh produce uh, from overseas. Um, quite often, it will come in from, from overseas, and then it will come in through uh, to, to a wholesaler. And then a wholesaler will stock it on a market. So somewhere, so for example, in, in London, we have what's called New Covent Garden Market. Distributors will then come and, um, I guess in the US, they would call them like food service providers, would come and, uh, and pick up the, the produce, uh, you know, nightly or whenever. And they'll either take it back to their distribution hub or they'll take it straight out to, to customers. Um, so you've got this, we, we break it down into three price points, you know, wholesale, distributor, and then direct to consumer. Um, for retailers, so, so for big supermarkets, it's obviously uh, slightly different. They'll get everything straight into their distribution centers or um, supply centers, and then it will be delivered into the supermarket aisles. Um, for us, our our model, because um, effectively we we moved away from being growers, so we we have a um, we still have a, an operation here in London. Um, it's a brand called Minicrops that supplies over 100 restaurants. And from the beginning, our main focus was, well, we don't want to go through these wholesale or distributor channels. If you go through those channels, you can sell volume direct, uh, sorry, volume uh, into those channels at a lower price point. But, you know, you're selling bulk is much easier. What we did is we said, right, well, let's go straight to uh, end consumer. Let's go straight to the restaurants. Let's go straight to the catering companies in the homes. Sell at a, a much higher price point. Downside from that, of course, is that you have to do the distribution and the marketing yourself. So the um, the price differential isn't as as uh, as much as as, um, as you would think. But it's still a great model because you get to stand behind the quality of the produce and you maintain that relationship with the the end consumer. Um, if we were just selling into distributor or, or wholesale channels, then there's that. Um, in some respects, we would be just like big farms where you know the produce comes in, it can sit there for a few days. And then it will go out to the consumer and it's, it could be bad or whatever. So effectively, they're putting their produce in the hands of the, um, the wholesalers and distributors uh, from a risk-based standpoint. Um, but of course, you know, not everybody's going to sell straight direct into restaurants. In terms of what our technology does now, um, as I said, we're, um, we're kind of moving away from the, the grower side of things. But um, we sell our, our technology systems into to growers. Uh, and that might be a, a small farm. Um, as I said, we don't really believe too much in the shipping container model, but um, say, you know, 500 square meter farm. And um, effectively, yeah, we, we sell our systems, license our software, and then we, uh, we enable um, effectively growers to, to do better at their farms. Um, we, we collect data centrally. So even if it's um, a farm overseas, we're continually collecting and analyzing data and then sending uh, insights back to the uh, the, the growers so that they can effectively um, operate their farms better and improve their yields, grow different products, look at different seed types, etc. So um, I guess that's that's where we fit in. But I guess the answer to the question is it really depends on on the uh, the chosen model of the uh, of the buyer now because we're more of a technology play. So that's that's something I really wanted to touch on as well because you know looking through your uh, content and your material, you have all of these turnkey projects. Um, that you you just mentioned, and it sounds interesting and also very cool because now you're able to customize a solution for a particular client. But the way that I understand vertical farming right now, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that 
you know, we have companies here in, in the U.S. as well. You know, just literally down the road, um, there I think they're called uh, Ag Plenty or something or Plenty Ag, and they're also a vertical company um, who are selling directly to um, your you know your supermarkets, and they develop the uh, produce inside their facility, and they you know maintain the highest quality as possible, but they don't provide these particular types of solutions that these turnkey uh, solutions you're talking about. Do you want to just shed some light on how is that different from what the other players are doing in the market at the moment? Well, I think Plenty, who you're, um, you've just mentioned, who have obviously had a lot of uh, press and they've been around for quite a while. I think they had, uh, Jeff Bezos was one of the early investors. Um, I think they just did a $130 million deal with um, just called the, the Strawberry Guys. So they're, I mean, they're effectively a grower. Um, they, they may have some... Uh, internal IP. If you if you look at their videos, they they use a lot of kind of off the shelf robotic arms and, and things like that. I'm sure they have a lot of R and D, but effectively, yeah, they're they're a grower, so that's their model. We um we may sell technology to somebody, and then they may ask us to also operate the farm. In which case, you know, we would use our brand and uh, um, you know, or it might be uh, it might be a JV, and we develop it. Um, you know, a new brand or something off the back of that, or it might be that we just sell the technology, the example I just uh, provided. But um, but no, effectively, our, our model is different. You know, we're, we're about, we're becoming uh, more of an R&D company where we, you know, we it's kind of like a skunk works. We have our, our R&D site where we continually work on ways, growing our own produce to, to develop systems that are better for the end consumer. And the end consumer buys them and then they have that that relationship directly with the retailers or with the restaurants or the catering companies or homes, depending on their model. So it's just, I guess the difference is um, there's an extra link in the chain between the consumers that we're selling to and the, uh, the example that you use with Plenty. If you, if you, you can d- distinctly, um, you can divide the, the, the vertical farming sector into two distinct areas, which is growers and technology providers effectively. I guess at the minute, yeah, we're kind of in between the two, but going more towards the technology side of things. Did you do, um, you know, enough market research in that realm to understand where you guys fit? Instead of, you know, what was the advantages and disadvantages of becoming a grower versus a technology provider? It's very different businesses. So, as a grower, you're you're growing millions of of um, you know pieces of you know or, or units of product every year and then you're, you're delivering them there and there are obviously a much uh, lower price point with a technology-based model you're you don't have that kind of volume you have distinct deals that you, you work to so I, I, I think we decided that this was a better opportunity for us because I think our journey was when we when we set up our first site in London in 2016 we were using very much off-the-shelf technology and a lot of that technology hasn't even really moved on too much. So a lot of it, for example, um, generation one LED lighting that's inflexible, that uh, is very wasteful in terms of energy uh, and so on, in, inflexible systems, no automation. And we just thought, well, I think we can do this better. And initially when we developed our systems, we did it just for ourselves. Let's become a better vertical farming business, improve our margins. And then through that process, um, through some very light marketing, we just realized actually there's a lot of people who want our systems as well. And then our, I guess our model just evolved from there, really. And um, I mean, our pipeline now, I mean, we're, you know, we're doing projects in, in Singapore and the Middle East. We're um, obviously doing a lot of projects across the UK. And even despite COVID, we've continued on. And um, yeah, the demand, 
demand's massive, but f- fundamentally, it's a, it's a completely different business model than uh, than being a, a grower. Um, and I think as a grower as well, there's a lot more risk in some respects because you're you're, you're growing fresh produce for starters, um, but also running a growing operation is is no uh, no you know it's not easy. It, it's tough. So you can only have so many farms. But I think being a, a technology provider, you can have a lot more farms in different locations. And then you, um, you know, we focus more on, on the data side of things, which is another you know, great value add for growers. But I think you can only be really, really good at one or two things. You need to choose what they are. You can't spread yourself too thin. Yeah, I think that's an interesting play by you guys, because when I first heard about you, I was like, okay, they're a vertical farming company, they're in ag tech, and they're probably like definitely must be growers. Then, you know, you look at your the material that you have, your website, and you start to dig deeper and you realize, okay, they have something else going on here. This is not just another run-of-the-mill uh, vertical farming company. They're trying to do something different, unique, and innovative and trying to take a template of what you guys have and then sort of scale that template out to thousands and you know uh many many clients in the world around the world so they can take the technology that you have i guess you're licensing that technology in some respects so we we sell the tech we sell the hardware and then we license the software um but yeah i I just just picking up on your point there i think um one thing that we realize with a lot of your kind of end consumers now people that want to get into vertical farming whether it's a corporate or it's a um, an existing food producer or an entrepreneur they they lack a lot of information and insights. And I think one of our big value adds is that, you know, we, we've been a grower, we continue to be a grower, and we understand how to grow different types of products. We understand how to market them, how to sell them. And we can transfer that information onto a buyer of our system. So that adds a lot more value. We're not, we're not just sitting here saying, we designed a nice technology system, here you go, good luck. It's a lot broader than that. And then we've got a very interesting um, wrap around R&D pipeline where we've got um, partnerships ranging from uh, phytopharmaceuticals through to growing crops in space, um, through to um, kind of seed, uh, different types of seeds that you can you can use and looking at things like genetics as well. And um, and we've, we've brought in to, to kind of deliver on all that, we've brought in a very experienced plant science software and uh, engineering teams, um, again, to, to make ourselves uh, different and stand out, to, to create more of a holistic, uh, rounded offering, which is um, how we, I guess, how we differentiate ourselves. Yeah, I want to touch quickly touch on the technology just in a little bit, but just uh, going back to your point about, um, you know, selling the hardware and the technology uh, and license, licensing that to uh, particular customers around the world. Just, if you can, maybe walk me through the process, because let's say I'm a customer i i go to your say uh your website like look i'm really interested in your services and your offerings um how do i become uh a partner of with vertical future let's say i'm based in australia or the us can you walk me through that sort of like that process from from day one all the way until they're finally equipped with everything they need to get started how does that entirely work first of all it's important to say that even a small site you know, 500 square meter site is still going to be probably a six to nine month um, project before you even have a fully built farm because it just just takes that long. Um, equally, you know, but maybe a 10,000 square meter site is maybe only three to four months longer than that. It's a lot of that early 
selling process, that negotiation process is very much focused on understanding what the, the customer wants, understanding do they have a site, do they have a, a business model in mind, do they need support with that, do they have uh, off-takers, you know, people that are going to buy their produce, because a lot of people want to get into it, but they don't think about the, um, the effort you have to go to to actually sell it. Um, do they uh, require support in terms of plant science? Have they got the right kind of team? So in some respects, we those first couple of months, we, in effect, do due diligence on the potential buyer as well because we don't want to sell a system to somebody who's going to fail because there there will be a lot of that. If you look at the, the noise in the vertical farming sector right now and some very good models and companies, but a lot of um, very basic uh, models where um, it's like that kind of... The, finance term you know the principal agent problem where effectively um you know people are going to fail and we don't want to be in bed with somebody uh, like that effectively so so yeah it's that and then you know a lot of modeling um if it's a, an international project and again we're just doing our first international project so um, i can't talk to loads of previous experience especially covid at the minute um we uh we go out there and obviously check out the site at the minute we're doing a lot of it remotely um you know, going through detailed plans for the sites Vertical farming, in effect, is a, it's an infrastructure project. So the modeling element, looking at the MPV, uh, all these aspects is, is, um, is very, very important. But what we've, um, what we've learned, and, and um, I think this is critical, is if you want to do international projects, you need to have partners that understand the, uh, the dynamics, the culture of the regions that you're selling into, and that also have the contacts. We're not naive enough to think that we can just produce everything here in the UK and ship it out, and um, and that's it. So we've built. Um, I, I can't tell you the specifics yet because it's going to be in the press uh, next kind of six weeks. But we've built very good partnerships um, in two regions in the Middle East and in Singapore, and uh, and that's all I'll say on those. But <laughs> no, I think that's uh, that's very cool, and uh, I know that the technology obviously has a big part to play in all of this. Um, not just a logistical effort, but being able to separate yourselves and have that competitive advantage. And I do like, you know, one of the things I love interviewing people about, whether it be vertical farming or self-driving cars and whatever, is sort of digging deeper into the, the the technology aspect of it. And I know that there are certain things you cannot and can, can and cannot talk about. Um, but from just a high level, you know, just to, at least for the listeners to understand a little bit about what, how vertical farming comes together, not just a grower, but just as a technology provider, there's a lot of stuff that comes into play here. Um, many layers, you know, you have the sensors, the automation, the data analytics, the big data, the cloud. Um, how, can you explain to me just a little bit about the, the monitoring aspect? So, you know, we all hear about IoT, uh, but, you know, IoT in your home, uh, your Alexa, your Google, but there's IoT in vertical farming as well. You know, you have these sensors, these lights that you're playing with that are remote, that require access uh, from wherever you are, right? How does um, IoT contribute to your uh, your company and how does it add value? Sure. So our our solution, I used the word holistic, we, we um, very much join up the hardware and software elements. Uh, we've got an IoT engineer and we've got a couple of other contract uh, programmers who've really supported us over the last uh, couple of months in, in terms of professionalizing everything. And I would actually say that joining up the software element with the hardware element has actually been the most challenging aspect. We, um, we have a central 
software uh, system, which is a SaaS product that we've developed called Diana, that we, uh, we named after Wonder Woman, which was uh, my wife wasn't very happy about, but um, we, uh, we wanted to come up with an interesting name. And uh, effectively, Diana uh, is the brain of, of everything. So if you, uh, if you look at a lot of products that other vertical farming companies have developed, they're, they're quite basic in, in what they offer. So they will allow you to like switch the lights on and off, change the temperature and the humidity and kind of monitor that. Ours goes a lot further than that in terms of things like um, space and dynamics and uh, resource allocation. So we, for example, have uh, RFIDs attached to all of our different traits. So we create 3D models to actually show where everything uh, is within the growing environment. And then that allows us to kind of extrapolate information and figure out you know, how can, you know, what can we be growing um, where should, where is it in the farm? If there's a, a potential issue with a product and we have to track it back, we can do that. Um, so the RFID is pretty critical. We also have different types of sens- sensors, including cameras, um, that effectively allow us to, to look at different stages of the growing process. Although there's a, a trade-off um, because obviously you're not going to have a sensor every meter squared, and that's going to drive obviously drive the capex up. You know, these are plants; they take time to grow. So I think. You don't, um, I think people think that a vertical farm has to be really, really sophisticated in terms of technology, but you don't need something that's super real time because changes in plants are very, very gradual. So you don't need, um, some of your hardware elements don't need to be super high performing. So if you look at our, our con- uh, control boxes, et cetera, we started by using things like, uh, you know, Arduinos and, and Raspberry Pis. And um, now we, we obviously moved to having our own PCBs. Um, we also are working with pretty much everything in our system is is our IP stuff that we've worked on, especially around the hardware and, and the software element as well. But we have brought in um, a couple of partners for some elements. So, for example, um, we have a research grant around uh, seed treatment um, using cold plasma, which means we don't have to use any chemicals. That's interesting as well. And then um, we've got a uh, an analytics company that... Um, uses a particular type of camera to, to monitor plant stress because obviously if you can if you can look at the, um, a plant in that way you're going to be able to see it before you know the visible uh, visible spectrum so that's another way that we we inter- integrate with um, with diana but um diana in the future will, will move toward more towards being a, an optimizer we have one product at the minute that we sell to, to customers and it has all these elements like the resource allocation it's got uh, an emu which shows you know all the different uh, aspects of the growing environment it's got a um a feature in there which is effectively a plant and r&d library so you can pull data from vertical future central and figure out the kind of different uh, plant trials you can be running and um there's also a, a crm tool that we're building so it's it's very um it's very very broad but um yeah it's it's um in in terms of the the importance of sensors and analytics especially considering we've developed a system which is pretty much fully automated from you know beginning to end um you know I can't un- underestimate the the importance of having uh, you know good sensors and and um uh, a link to, uh, back to to Diana because if we don't have that then what you're effectively doing is saying Day one, put the plant in, and then day twenty-five, oh, did the plant grow uh, well or not? And that that's not good. <laughs> Does um, with Diana because it is a, a software service. Is it you know if you have a customer that comes to you, and obviously you know one of that on on that offering, you will provide Diana to them. Um, is that maintained by you and managed by you as well, or is that completely sort of isolated just for the customer to maintain and observe? 
So we, we have a team here that we're building because obviously, you know, we just kind of do our first big projects. But um, as the more farms that we have, obviously, the more people will have to recruit centrally to, to obviously manage the, the data side of things. So we have technicians that will physically go out to the farms and fix things. We have a, um, on the hardware side, we have, uh, you know, spare parts and things like that for, for, for customers. And obviously we, we train them, them up to be able to replace particular things. But um, I think there is an expectation that there are some things that, well, there's an understanding that there's some things that we can't help with, but we've, we've designed the system in such a way where we can do most things uh, remotely. And um, going back to the hardware point, if it's obviously the more remote and further away the project is, the more difficult it is in terms of, um, you know, troubleshooting or if there's an issue on the hardware or software side. So we find it um, important to develop relationships with um, different types of companies in different geographies, maybe on a contract basis. So it can be like a call out, a bit like you have for your, your, you know, your plumbing at your house. Got it. I feel like, you know, IoT is definitely revolutionizing a lot of industries at the moment. And um, it seems to me that IoT fits extremely well with vertical farming because in ag tech, it seems to me that there's a lot of applications. Um, and if we just remove vertical farming away for now uh, from the, the picture, it seems to me that, you know, you can do a lot of sensor and monitoring analysis um, of these particular uh, types of produce, but more so in vertical farming, it sounds like because you have the infrastructure around it, everything's highly controlled, highly, highly controlled. Um, you can uh, sort of meticulously track and monitor every piece of um, of your product. And I think that really provides, um, you know, food for thought for everyone who is consuming this because they know that there is um, you know, the utmost care and the utmost diligence has gone into growing these things um, uh, free of pesticides and, and what have you. You know, how, how important is it to invest in these types of technologies? I mean, what is sort of the, the roadmap for the engineering um, life cycle, at least for vertical future um, in the near term? So I think our roadmap will focus more on uh, modularization. So having products that are more and more uh, modular and are applicable for different like a synergistic industries. So not necessarily just uh, basic food production. So I already mentioned uh, that we're doing stuff in phytopharmaceuticals and you know having mobile kind of R&D labs and things that can be um, um, put into different areas for different types of consumers. So I think that um, our focus on robotics has been I think people have different understandings of what robotics is so I mentioned that there are some other farms that will buy the big robotic arms and you just tell the young you know go from here to here and repeat that motion and that's very simple stuff we've taken more of a um, simplistic approach to um, effectively automation across our, our growing environments I think we I think we'd probably like to do more uh, in that space, continue to, to innovate. Um, and when I say innovate, it's, it's about having more control and also being able to bring the price point down because the minute we have a, a solution which is, which is competitive, it's more premium than probably a lot of, uh, a lot of your kind of um, more simple vertical farming solutions, but it, it delivers better margins because of the automation and, and the level of control, et cetera. But I think, um, yeah, doing more in the in the robotics space and just continually innovating there. Obviously, 
Lighting as well is a, is a critical area. So we, we have fully adjustable lights throughout the entire growing environment. So you, if you compare um, the five different LED types we have, which go from UV, um, and the fact that you can change intensity for every light, you can effectively have millions of different combinations. Now, from an R&D standpoint, that means that we could spend years or decades sitting there testing uh, because, you know, it could be weeks or months to test a particular product to test the impact of, of, of light um, on, on a particular crop. But then if you look at, um, again, from an R&D standpoint, it gets more complicated because you've got lots of other variables in vertical farms. So, um, so yeah, there's many things we could be focusing on, but probably, you know, lighting, um, robotics and and also maybe on the logistics side of things as well i think we'd, we'd like to, to to be better so if you know just to touch on this point one more time if you do come up with a next generation of hardware or lighting solution and you have existing customers out there who are on a previous generation and they're scattered around the world what is the um the upgrade process for those things is that does that mean that you have to go out individually to each of your clients and farms to upgrade the hardware um, because the software update is more or less quite easy but when it comes to hardware what's the what's the process like there uh, well first of all on the hardware side if you look at the if you look at our growing systems um, obviously I haven't explained um, too much about them but we've developed a system which is very flexible so one of the well, one of the perceived market failures is that, um, well, at least from our side, uh, is that people build these kind of rigid fixed systems um, with particular heights from from the uh, from seed up to, to the lighting. And then they have an understanding and on, on day one about what they want to grow. But in the future, in, in two, three years time, they may experience demand shock or they want to grow something different. And then they have to fundamentally change the structure of their systems. We've developed um, suspended systems that you can effectively um, change the dynamics of very, uh, very quickly. We've also used materials that will last you know, 20, 30 years that you know, won't require uh, you know, replacement after five to 10. We've come up with a, an LED approach which has a longer useful life. So it's an infrastructure project. You know, things are going to break and they're going to require replacement over time but we've tried to approach the market in such a way where we're offering something which lasts a lot longer for consumers i think probably the biggest element that is is going to potentially ad, uh, advance is is led lighting although there are some studies which indicate that led lighting's improved like this but now it's starting to flatten out so um, we model our projects on the basis of you know you have a life cycle fund and there's an expectation that every year you're you're committing X percent of your, your revenue to uh, effectively, you know, a piggy bank, which is going to help to replace some of your uh, your, your assets. Um, and we build that into there. So um, that's that. But I, I think in terms of the logistics of going out and replacing, it's, you know, it's important to have local teams to, to develop uh, support teams in different geographies. But um, but yeah, hopefully this won't be too much of an issue because you know we we're very comfortable with our solution and for the majority of the hardware we've built something that will last a really long time. Yeah, no, I think you touch on the point of that operations and making sure that your operational capability is up to the mark and you know it's not just an engineering problem; it's an operation problem and logistics and scheduling and and what have you. So it sounds to me that you know there's a lot of layers to this. And this comes with not just agricultural or vertical farming, but any tech company in general that has software, uh, sorry, hardware 
that they're dealing with that needs to be upgraded over a certain lifetime. Um, and that sort of brings me to my our next point. And I know that we're getting towards the end of the, the hour here, but I want to quickly touch on some of the challenges I guess some of you, you guys are facing. And one of the things that uh, I usually think about when it comes to not just lighting and um, infrastructure and vertical farming, but also just power consumption, energy use, right? What is What does your model show in terms of not just the amount of power uh, you're consuming, but the amount of water you're using as well? How have those two factors come into play and really you know, painted a, a picture for you about um, this is actually something that can be scaled and something that can, um, you know, outgrow and outpace the current classical way of doing things. So what's, what's your take there? So there's been some, some bad press about LED lighting. So I think people, are, people who are kind of against vertical farming look at it and they're like, well, you know, why, why move something inside when we've got this, this free resource outside the sun? Um, and they don't look at things from and earlier on. You mentioned uh, energy in the supply chain. So I think when you're when you're doing a comparative analysis and you're comparing a, a vertical farm versus a traditional farm, there are many many different factors to take into account. That being said, it's true that most vertical farms who are using generation one LED lighting are the the, the economic models. I mean, they don't they don't really stack up in in some respects, especially for the very small farms. They're they're having to grow. Things like microgreens, you know, very uh, high margin, high turnover produce and selling them, you know, at premium price points to survive. And a lot of that is to do with the energy and the initial capital cost of those, of those farms. We've taken an approach where we effectively have um, uh, developed a product and, and a solution that in, it, in its entirety uh, consumes a lot less energy. So between 40 and 60 percent less than, than most other lighting solutions in vertical farms. And a lot of that is to do with the way that we've designed the farm from an engineering standpoint. Um, we've also taken a non-traditional approach to, to things like um, HVAC systems. So um, very, very different approach there um, because that's effectively your second biggest cost uh, behind the lighting. Um, but it, 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 it's true. Energy is something that um, we, we need to continually find ways forward with. And I, I guess the downside with having urban models in places like London is that you can't really um, link in with sustainable energy um, sources so things like you can't put up a big solar farm in the middle of london you don't have the the right um external conditions the right amount of sun uh, sunlight to do that but in you know places like the middle east it's much easier to to do things like that on on the water point um we we've got a system which you can flip between aeroponic or hydroponic mode um, traditionally aeroponics which has been around for, for quite a while um, but Actually, very few uh, few vertical farms use it. Most people are still doing hydroponics. Not only is um, lower risk in terms of things like cross contamination, give you, also give you a lot more control, but it consumes a lot, lot less water. So hydroponic systems, we can recirculate and treat the water, but only so many times. The aeroponic systems, they use significantly less uh, less water. So um, water. I'm a big believer that water is going to be and it's already becoming. You know the next big uh, challenge of our time: sustainable energy, sustainable foods, and and, and water. Um, things that people need to be investing in. I think we very much take it for granted. Um, but I, I I don't think there is much as much pressure on the water issue in developed economies again because we take it for granted. But so projects that we're um, starting to build in the Middle East are uh, if you look at the the cost of water out there and it, it starts to open your eyes. 
um, and you have to think about things in, in a much more um, innovative way. Yeah, I think there's a lot of um, discussions around just resource usage when it comes to these sort of things. And, you know, I think for me, it's a bit still a bit hairy about exactly um, what are the key advantages uh, when it comes to versus the classical way of doing farming versus, you know, taking this approach. And a lot of variables come into play because, you know, yes, you have the ability to um, transport a solution to the actual geography that you're going to supply the produce in. So that means you're taking out transportation, you're taking out the carbon footprint associated with that. But then at the same time, you're imposing um, resource use in that area alone, uh, whether it be water usage or energy consumption. So it's an interesting question. I thought I'd just ask you because it has something that has cropped up on my mind, especially when looking into uh, particular solutions um, related to vertical farming. I mean, from a basic economic standpoint, it just it comes down to whether or not the the uh, material gains in in output um, and efficiency by you know growing in a more controlled environment uh, and the um, the gains or the improvements or net reduction in carbon um, effectively um, surpass or, or are greater than the potential increases in energy consumption for your, your base production compared to a traditional farm. I mean that's a pretty central question. Um, but again, it's quite a complicated formula if you, if you look at it. And then there are other things to take into account as well. So the, the potential health impact of, of, of not using pesticides, um, the fact that, you know, vertical farms, in a sense, are, are encouraging a rewilding of the environment because we're moving production site. We're, we're not putting pressure on, on soil. You know, soil degrade, degradation is, is pretty, um, pretty rife uh, globally. So um, there are many factors to consider, but uh, you know I do agree that the the energy point is uh, energy and water points are are, um, are central. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that as well. Um, are there are there any other massive challenges that uh, you can foresee uh, down the road, other than the water and the energy, um, the sort of technology challenges? Any other um, maybe regulatory or anything like that that you can um, that you have to face in down the road? On the regulatory side, governments are starting to better understand vertical farming and it's becoming more central to their strategies. So if you look in places like Singapore, they're way ahead. Mind you, Singapore are way ahead in most things. The um, So I think that there'll probably be more barriers to entry in the future for, for, uh, for vertical farms. Um, I think more broadly, the main challenges for the industry right now are sorting the good from the bad. And I think because it's the hot topic of the month or the year or the decade, people, there are different types of models that are coming to light. And vertical farming is not as simple as, you know, let's just get some shelves and you know, stick some light on it and, you know, then start selling produce. I mean, there are, there's health and safety things to consider. There's plant science to consider. There are huge differences. And, you know, for example, I talked about things like asset life, efficiency, it's far more uh, complex than, than people think. And the problem is you have a lot of, like I said, a lot of very good examples, but equally there's a lot more bad examples of, um, of you know, advanced vertical farming systems or so-called uh, that, you know, I, I've got to, my, my slight worry is that there will be some failures in the market and that may create bad press for, uh, for the wider vertical farming industry when you know, we're actually trying to do something really, really good. And it may take a while for those kind of those failures to materialize, but they, like most sectors, I guess, you know, they, um, 
mistakes happen and 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 there are always uh, companies that fail but um it's because we're we're doing something so important that addresses so many issues um we want to minimize the number of failures yeah and you mentioned the the importance of that and what you're trying to do with the industry uh, just to sort of finish off with uh with the conversation i want to understand a little bit about the motivation that drove you to do this um, you know, vertical farming is not an easy thing to do. You know, you can't just wake up one day and say, I'm going to start a company that focuses on vertical farming and, uh, you know, here I go. What compelled you to really get out of your comfort zone from what you were doing before to really pursuing this uh, this idea of yours? So so basically, I um, priced it in the company up. Uh, I lost both my parents uh, to cancer, which was pretty horrific. And I was working in a very stressful job. Uh, had a, had a couple of kids, my wife, and uh, just really wanted to do something different. So uh, I, I guess that just pushed me forward. And I don't know. In some respects, maybe it was a an early life crisis where I just wanted to do something different. And um, to be honest with you, before setting the company up, I hadn't grown a thing in my life. So it was a real learning process. And uh, spent a couple of years doing everything from seeding and harvesting and deliveries and taking bags out to, to restaurants and just learned the business from the, the bottom up. And I think that, that um, that's been really, really helpful um, in, terms of, uh, in, in terms of helping with this next phase of the business. We almost made it the whole way without the, uh, without the 99%. No, I, I appreciate it. I, I think I, I got the gist of it. And that's uh, really amazing to, to hear that you've decided to take on a venture that was challenging, but also worthwhile as well because i think uh, the stuff that you're doing is really important um and you know it's a very early industry right now and who knows what's going to happen uh with regards to the technology the movement and and for me specifically you know i would love to one day taste um produce that comes and that has grown in a vertical farm and you know i i would love to you know at some point maybe when i uh have once a vaccine is in order I can make a trip to visit you guys and maybe you can show me around because that would be awesome to see what sort of facility that you've built up for you. Yeah, you're more, more than welcome to. Just let me know. Thanks, Jamie. Brilliant. Thank you.